1972, the United States acknowledged that Taiwan was part of China. In 1979, the U.S. reaffirmed that point and in no uncertain terms recognized that there is just one China and Taiwan is part of the People's Republic of China. But today, the United States appears to be preparing for confrontation and even war with China over Taiwan. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're joined today by Ken Hammond. Dr. Ken Hammond is a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. He's a founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an organizer and activist with Pivot to Peace. Dr. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here again. Well, 1972, the Shanghai communique, Richard Nixon had gone to China, the sticking point, of course, for China to be able to normalize, and that was the beginning of the normalization process of relations between the two countries, was for the U.S. to acknowledge that Taiwan is, in fact, part of China. And in 1979, when normalization of relations actually happened during the administration of Jimmy Carter... There was another declaration in January 1st, 1979, that also acknowledged that Taiwan is part of China. Up until 1972, the U.S. only recognized the so-called Republic of China, Taiwan, as the rightful and legitimate government in China. It was Taiwan, an island, not the People's Republic of China, that represented China at the United Nations and at the Security Council. But all that changed when the U.S. changed its position. I say that, Ken, because I'm looking at the Washington Post editorial. It's not an anomaly. It's very typical of what's being presented right now by the U.S. media and by the U.S. government. In fact, the U.S. media is echoing the U.S. government. But here it is. Lead editorial, Tuesday of this week, how the U.S. government can deter China's threat in Taiwan. The first paragraph. The skies around Taiwan are thick with Chinese fighter jets and nuclear-capable bombers, with Beijing flying 150 sorties through the edge of the island's air defense identification zone in early October alone. Whatever President Xi Jinping's precise intention to bully Taiwan and its allies, the United States included, to provoke them or to inflame domestic nationalism, it is not benign. Anyway, Ken, the article goes on and on. It actually sounds like the U.S. must prepare for war to defend Taiwanese independence or Taiwanese sovereignty. This is 40, 50 years after the U.S. acknowledged that Taiwan was indeed part of China. This kind of hysterical language is becoming increasingly common. And what's remarkable, of course, is that it's yet another example of the ways in which 
American political elites project onto the other party that they're dealing with the kind of behavior that they themselves indulge in. It's not China that has been trying to change the functional status quo in the relationship between Taiwan and the mainland. It's American politicians and some elements within Taiwan itself using new rhetoric, using inflammatory language to try to maximize their own political agendas. It's not China that's changing the equation. This idea that Taiwan might move towards independence, that Taiwan might change the nature of its representative offices in the United States, that there's even talk of possibly in a few years of China and Taiwan both having diplomatic relations with the United States. All of that goes against not just the way things have been, but against, as you say, the explicit undertakings made by the American government back in the 1970s when they were going through the process of normalizing relations with the People's Republic. There's no question that Taiwan is a part of China. Even the government on Taiwan itself, the local authorities on Taiwan itself, refer to themselves as the Republic of China. The claim is that there's only one China, and they, of course, claim to be the government of the whole country, but that's patently absurd. And so how does this situation get resolved? It's not going to get resolved by having American saber rattling, by having America ramp up its sale of weapons and its stationing of troops, its clandestine secret stationing of troops in Taiwan. You know, this just isn't going to lead to a calm and dispassionate resolution of this situation. Xi Jinping very recently made very clear statements that this is a situation that's internal to China and the Chinese people, and which will resolve itself as the course of national development goes forward. It's not something that has to be so contentious and so confrontational. It's the American side and certain elements in Taiwan that are ramping up the aggressive postures around this. Let's just put this into the historical context. How did the so-called Republic of China get formed? Of course, it was a byproduct of the victory of the communist-led forces, the forces led by Mao Zedong in the long, 27-year-long civil war in China. But let's, for the audience, especially for those who may be newer to the issue, help us understand how Taiwan, which was for so long and forever, perhaps, a part of China, certainly for hundreds and hundreds of years, we know it fell under Japanese colonial domination when it was ceded to Japan after the Sino-Japanese War. But let's just bring us up to 1949 and how this all played out. Sure. I mean, as you say, Taiwan, the island of Taiwan becomes a part of the political entity of China, really all the way back beginning around the 13th, 14th centuries. Chinese settlers from the mainland cross the straits and begin establishing themselves on the island even earlier than that. But certainly by the Ming dynasty, the 16th, 17th centuries, and on through the Qing dynasty, more and more people from the mainland of China 
are migrating to Taiwan, settling there. There was an indigenous pre-existing population, and there were some issues of tension still today between some of the longer established indigenous communities and the mainlanders. But Taiwan, the island, becomes a part of the last two dynasties of China. For a long time, it was organized, it was administered as a part of Fujian province, which is across the straits on the mainland. But in the 1880s, it became a province in its own right. It had its own governor. It was an integral part of the Chinese imperial system. As you mentioned, it's taken by Japan after the 1895 war with China. And for the next 50 years, Taiwan was part of the Japanese empire. And that's important to remember because there were a couple of generations, at least, that grew up under Japanese colonial rule, were educated in Japanese, were culturally sort of saturated with Japanese influence. And that only comes to an end in 1945. As a result of the agreements ending World War II, the Japanese surrender and the disposition of territories that Japan had acquired in its expansionist phase, Taiwan was quite properly returned to sovereignty of China. At that point, of course, that would have been the Republic of China. When the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, realized, began to have to face the facts that they were going to lose the Civil War, the struggle against the Communist Party and the Red Army, they began to make plans to evacuate the mainland and regroup on the island of Taiwan. That was not very well received by the local population on Taiwan. And in February of 1948, the nationalists actually imposed martial law. There were big demonstrations against the nationalists. Lots of people, thousands of people were killed and imprisoned. And the nationalists had to establish military martial control of the island. And that martial law remained in place in Taiwan until 1993. So for all of that time, Taiwan was basically a military state with some of the trappings of a bourgeois democracy, but it was under martial law and it was run by the nationalists and the military that had evacuated there at the end of the civil war in China. As the Red Army and the communist forces extended their control over the mainland through 1948, 1949, even into 1950, and especially with the proclamation of the People's Republic in October of 49, the nationalist forces fled most of them made their way to Taiwan. Some fled over into Burma and had a whole separate history over there. But the main body of the nationalists went to Taiwan and controlled it, made it their military base and their political refuge from then on. But they have always continued to claim to be the Republic of China. Their view is that they should be the legitimate government. There was talk in the 50s of maybe retaking the mainland, trying to overthrow the communists. That, of course, was never on the cards. But this presence of a remnant from the revolutionary period, from the Civil War period, still in control of the island of Taiwan, that's what creates the divisions across the straits that continue to persist down to the present day. Can the population of Taiwan today is about 23 million, 23 million. The population of the People's Republic of China is 1.4 billion. Help Everyone understand how it was that when the United Nations was formed in 1945, and even after the Kuomintang, the nationalist forces, the Chiang Kai-shek-led 
government was forced to flee because they lost the civil war with the communists. They fled to Taiwan, occupied Taiwan, created martial law on Taiwan, a reign of terror against the indigenous population in Taiwan. And yet they, not the People's Republic of China, in spite of the size difference, were recognized as the rightful and legitimate government at the United Nations, including at the Security Council. So there are five members of the Security Council, the United States, at that time the Soviet Union, France, Britain, and China. And it wasn't until 1972, in other words, for more than two decades, that this rump government in a population that was minuscule compared to the actual government of the People's Republic of China occupied its seat or the seat at the UN Security Council? Well, of course, the position of China during World War II as one of the great powers, this was something that was popular domestically in the United States. There was a lot of support within the United States for Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist government, in part because of the influence of American missionary communities that had been active in China, and in part, of course, during the war, because the nationalists were fighting the Japanese. When Japan invades China, China proper in 1937, there was tremendous sympathy for the Chinese on the part of a lot of people in America. And important political influencers, I suppose we would say today, like Henry Luce, the publisher of Time and Life magazines, he used to put Chiang Kai-shek on the cover of Time magazine four or five or six times a year made him man of the year a couple of times. So a lot of popular political support was being generated for the nationalists. And so the allied powers, you know, and the substantial allied powers, the United States, France, Britain, the Soviet Union, as they would meet to talk about the conduct of the war, well, China was the big partner in Asia. You know, I mean, the British, the French, even the Soviets were pretty preoccupied with the situation in the European theater. The war in the Pacific, basically, of course, out in the Pacific was the American war. But the Chinese were tying down a million Japanese troops in the occupied areas of China. The Red Army, the guerrilla war in northern China behind Japanese lines, and the actions of the Nationalist Army against Japanese main force units. This, you know, kept tremendous Japanese resources occupied in China that then could not be deployed elsewhere in the war with the United States. So Roosevelt and his advisors wanted to keep Chiang Kai-shek happy, keep China high on the agenda. So Chiang Kai-shek gets invited to many of the allied peace conferences. There's some great pictures of him at Cairo in 43, sitting with Roosevelt and Churchill, looking very pleased to be there. And the legacy of that, of course, was that when the United Nations was formed after the war in 1945, China was sort of just automatically included as one of the permanent members of the Security Council, one of the members of the Security Council with a veto power. And at that time, of course, the Republic of China, the government, the nationalist government, was the legally recognized government of China. And China was one-fifth of the people of the earth. So it made sense in some ways for them to be included. Where it gets to be problematic, of course, is 
with the Civil War, with the establishment of the People's Republic, the new government, which was, of course, recognized not just by the Soviet Union or the Eastern European socialist states, but by Britain, by France, by other European countries, by countries all over the world, including newly independent countries like India and Indonesia. You know, the new government in China should have succeeded to that seat at the United Nations. But because the United States refused to recognize the People's Republic, the United States maintained its policy of just sort of turning a blind eye. It would not allow, of course, at that point, the U.S. was much more dominant within the United Nations than it is today. But it simply refused to consider not having the Republic of China, this, as you put it, this rump regime still down on Taiwan, not hold that seat. They had held that seat and the United States made sure that they kept it, even though there were repeated efforts to change that. But the United States was able to dominate and intimidate enough to keep Taiwan in that seat all the way down until 1972. Yes. In fact, I wanted to just mention for people that When the People's Republic of China was formed and the government officially takes power October 1st, 1949, the government led by Mao, the Soviet Union, in solidarity with the newly formed People's Republic of China, decided to boycott the Security Council until the new government in China was actually allowed to take its rightful place in the Security Council. And of course, those five members as you mentioned, have veto power. No resolution, no UN resolution can go forward without a consensus amongst those five. So it's this, you know, preponderant power within the UN structure. And as a matter of fact, six or nine months after the Chinese revolution succeeds, the conflict in Korea breaks out And the Soviet Union, because it was boycotting the UN at that time in solidarity with China and its demand to be the rightful seat at the Security Council, the US was able to ram through a resolution, a resolution that would have otherwise been vetoed, so that the United Nations, not the United States, declares war against the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and then uses the fiction of a multilateral event, you know, it became multilateral, but the U.S. then mobilized 26 countries under the flag of the U.N. So it wasn't the U.S. that went to war against the North Koreans. It wasn't the U.S. that went to war against the DPRK or against the Korean people generally. It wasn't the United States. It was the United Nations. So, I mean, just something for people to remember in terms of the importance actually of who is in the Security Council under these kind of circumstances. Let's just roll the video forward, though, Ken, to 1972. At that moment when first Kissinger and then Nixon go to China, they have secret negotiations first, Kissinger does, and then Nixon comes and he meets Mao, he meets Zhou Enlai, the Shanghai communique is signed. The U.S. then acknowledges that Taiwan is, in fact, part of China, and Taiwan loses its seat because the U.S. has changed its policy. Now the U.N. policy changes, and now China is officially recognized, the People's Republic is officially recognized as the government and the government in the Security Council. It was an amazing moment in the United Nations because you could see 
that while the U.S. exercised this intimidating, dominating power, when the announcement came that China, the People's Republic, was going to take its rightful seat, the whole U.N., the entire General Assembly, went crazy. I mean, it was an amazing moment. Yes, that announcement was a galvanizing moment, I think, for many, both in the General Assembly, of course, where, as you say, there was a sort of spontaneous celebration and applause. But it was also, you know, there were hundreds of millions of people around the world who saw this, you know, simply as at least moving a little bit more towards making the UN what it should actually be in terms of representing the people, not just the original founding institutions, but the people of the world. You know, that China is a fifth of the human population, a fifth of humanity. And it just makes sense to have the government that represents them be the one that occupies that seat at the United Nations. In thinking about the Shanghai communique and the recognition communique in 1979, it's just so straightforward. The Shanghai communique, it says that the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. I don't think it's possible to be much more straightforward than that. And yet, you know, it had taken 23 years since the establishment of the PRC for the United States to reach that position. And it would take another seven years after that until January of 79 to really bring that to its fulfillment with the establishment of diplomatic relations. Looking back on that now, as the United States is adopting this increasingly hostile, aggressive, confrontational posture towards China and ramping up tensions around the China Strait, sending American warships through the Strait, as well as, of course, doing their provocations down in the South China Sea, it's just remarkable to think that after all this time, this issue has still remained something that American political elites want to manipulate. Xi Jinping has been very clear that this is something that should be resolved by the Chinese in its own time, in its own way. This is something that will essentially disappear eventually as a problem as the development of both sides of the straits continues to advance. And that, it seems to me, is a much more productive and a much more reasonable approach than all of this posturing and saber rattling that we have to endure these days. There's also an anti-colonial element to this. I was thinking about when Japan takes Taiwan and it, Taiwan becomes a Japanese colony. That's 1895. During that same time period, the U.S. government, another emerging empire on the other side of the world, annexes the island of Hawaii. Now, Hawaii is far, far further away from the mainland of the United States than Taiwan is from the mainland of China. But the U.S. seized Hawaii just as the Japanese seized Taiwan. And then the United States made Hawaii a territory of the United States. And eventually, even though it's thousands of miles from the U.S. mainland, made it a state, meaning it became especially a U.S. government and military outpost in the middle of the Pacific. And, you know, when we think about how the Chinese view Taiwan coming back to a unified China, they're also seeing it not only in sort of a normal way that countries 
operate and, and sort of exercise sovereignty over their territory. Certainly, if China was sending you know, warplanes towards Hawaii and promoting Hawaiian independence, I'm quite sure, I'm quite sure the U.S. would be ready to go to war about that and consider it to be a brazen act of aggression. But, you know, when you think about it from the point of view of China's unification, Taiwan, Hong Kong, these were areas that were seized by colonial powers, and it was a top priority for China to reincorporate them into the unification of the country at the end of what was called the century of humiliation or the era of colonialism or semi-colonialism, the era of spheres of influence where foreign countries dominated China and Chinese waters and Chinese territories. It's so important for those of us in the U.S. to understand this part of the political thinking of China and why it was when Nixon came to China, it was the thing that Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai put forward as a non-negotiable factor in order to go forward with any sense of normalization. The U.S. had to acknowledge that Taiwan is part of China. Anyway, I, I want to frame it that way so people here understand how important this is to China, not necessarily from the point of view of the geographic territory of Taiwan. I mean, the People's Republic of China would do fine if it never had any real sovereignty over Taiwan. But the issue is really political, it's historical, and it speaks to like a fundamental sort of primary priority of the Chinese revolution. Well, I think the key concept, the key term that you just mentioned, of course, is sovereignty. A state, especially in the modern multi-state world, a state has sovereignty over a specific territory. And the People's Republic of China was the, is the government that inherited the territory that had previously constituted the republic. The republic had inherited the territory that had previously constituted the Qing dynasty. And that's just a political reality, a geopolitical reality. The boundaries of the Qing dynasty of the Republic of China were consistent. They were recognized in international law. They were defined by treaties in various places. This was a whole elaborate legal structure, which after all was to a considerable extent imposed on China by Western powers, by the Western powers. And then you know, when it's not convenient for them or when it's in their interest to manipulate that system, you know, they turn around and say, oh, but Taiwan, you know, shouldn't be part of China. You know, it should just go and do its own thing. It's a very strange sort of perversion of these ideals. As you say, I mean, the United States is a land that was built by the incremental acquisition of other people's territories. And yet, when there was an effort, you know, in the middle of the 19th century for one part of the United States to declare itself independent, to fracture the national unity, the national sovereignty of the government, that resulted in the American Civil War, the bloodiest war in American history. I'm always fascinated with the idea that 
American politicians talking about China act as if secession, as if the unilateral declaration of independence by one little territory within the larger country is a perfectly cool thing to have happen when the United States itself fought this massive war to thwart the independence of the southern states in the 1860s. You know, we don't believe in secession. We don't accept secession, except when it's in the political interests of American elites to promote it. So there's some historical ironies, not just in the situation of China dealing with Western imperialism and Western colonialism, but in the sort of two-faced hypocritical attitude of American politicians, you know, ignoring their own history and trying to provoke the violation, the disruption of the sovereignty of China, you know, out of their own particular political agendas and ambitions. I have a theory about why Taiwan has become like the hot button issue right now for the United States. So you have the Washington Post, CNN, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, liberal or conservative, doesn't matter. They're all all about Taiwan now. And it feels to me like the genocide allegations and assertions about what China's doing in the western part of China in Xinjiang with the Uyghur people and other minority peoples in the western China, that crusade, and I use the word crusade advisedly, that western crusade against China, that seems to be sort of losing steam because, you know, ultimately it bumps into facts. The fact being that there is no genocide being carried out against the Uyghurs or the other peoples in Western China. That's not true. Hyperbole is like an understated term when we want to describe what the U.S. is doing by labeling China's policy in Xinjiang as genocide. But that seems to be kind of losing some steam because it collides with facts that are, you know, acknowledgeable, that are realizable, that people can point to. So Taiwan and the independence of Taiwan or the need to defend Taiwan from Chinese aggression, that's a kind of issue that if you present it that way, it's never going to go away because the United States can always make the argument, look, Taiwan is being bullied by China. It's the victim of China's aggression. It's being threatened militarily by China. We have to step up. And by stepping up, we have to do proactive measures to defend Taiwan. So it's all about defense, defense, defense. It's not about aggression. It's not about going on the offense. It's about defending these poor Taiwanese. I say that because we learned just recently, Ken, that a year ago under Trump, but it's continued under Biden, showing the great continuity that exists between the two imperial administrations, the U.S. Pentagon has secretly deployed troops to Taiwan training those troops for basically military confrontation with a government that the U.S. recognizes has sovereignty over the island. I mean, again, if we could just put the shoe on the other foot, if China was secretly sending military forces to train, say, independence forces in Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico is really not a good analogy because Puerto Rico really is a colony and was never a province of the United States. It was just seized by the United States at the same time in literally the same year annexed Hawaii. But again, you can just imagine if 
China was sending even a small contingent of military forces to train independence forces fighting for secession. When you think about what the reaction would be from the United States, you can't but come to the conclusion that China's you know, response to this revelation has been pretty restrained, pretty, well, not muted. They've been protesting. But again, it seems to me like this is either the first step towards an actual confrontation with China, or certainly designed to provoke China, force or require China to divert more and more of its resources to their military spending, which of course, for a government like China, it would much prefer to spend the resources on building subways and trains and houses and hospitals and parks rather than more missiles and bombs. Anyway, let's just talk about this revelation about the secret deployment of U.S. military forces. I think that this is an example of of some truly reckless behavior. I mean, the United States has been escalating the sales of military equipment to Taiwan for a while. That's always been a sort of sore point in the relationship. The United States from time to time has made big sales. The United States used to bring Taiwanese military personnel here to the United States for training. The relationship has always been a little iffy, a little problematic, a little murky on some of those areas. But this act, this move, on the one hand, you know, you might sort of dismiss it as, oh, well, it's another crazy gesture that Trump carried out. But here we are, you know, uh, well into the Biden era, and there's been no effort to end that mission or repudiate it. Really, it ought to be, those guys ought to be withdrawn, and the whole thing should be acknowledged as having been a bad move in the first place. But that's not what's happening because it's consistent with the bipartisan hostility towards China, which has become the dominant position within bourgeois politics in the United States. The American political elites and the media that mouths their attitudes, you know, has adopted this pretty much all-out confrontational attitude towards China. And inserting these military units into Taiwan to carry out these training activities, it's a provocative act. And the fact that this information has come out, you know, we always have to ask ourselves, how does this leak take place? How does this news get out? How do we find out about these things? Why is that information being leaked right now? You know, who's doing that? What's their agenda? It certainly contributes to the further ratcheting up of tensions. And I agree that although, of course, the government in Beijing has protested against this, you know, it hasn't turned into a major publicity issue or a major diplomatic disruption. Nobody's recalling ambassadors or things like that. I think that's been a very restrained, moderated kind of response on the part of the Chinese to what really is a very provocative gesture. And one, again, that goes against not just the spirit of these communiques, but against the formal commitments of the American government not to manipulate the situation, not to militarily intervene in the situation. This is a direct violation of those precepts. It really probably is illegal, if not in American domestic law, certainly in international law. And it's something that ought to be stopped. You know, those forces should be withdrawn immediately. But I think that's highly unlikely because it's very consistent with the anti-China attitude that is predominant in Washington, D.C. these days. 
Ken, we're coming to the close. I want to ask you real quickly about what's going to happen from China, China side. I'm looking at the Global Times. Of course, Global Times speaks very forthrightly. It's a media outlet close to China. Here's how the headlines read about the situation between the U.S. and Taiwan. Quote, Taiwan secessionist stage doomsday madness in seeking foreign support. That's one headline. Second headline, teach the U.S. Taiwan Island a real lesson if they call for it. Third headline, EU warned not to play with fire on Taiwan question. I mean, this is, of course, language that's not the same at all as the language of China's foreign ministry. But content-wise, it has the same message. China's not going to back down. This is a point of you know, absolute primacy for China. The U.S. knows this. And so it seems as if what the U.S. is trying to do under Trump, under Biden, with the Pentagon, with the media, is pour gasoline on the fire. With that said, and the fire being the deteriorating relations between China and the United States. With that said, and given the fact that there are all kinds of air-sea battle scenarios being played out in Pentagon war rooms right now, even though many people think, well, it's impossible that the U.S. and China could actually go to war, because, of course, that would be crazy. But people would have said that about World War I before it started that all the major powers would go to war and kill tens of millions of people in a short amount of time. And then it repeated 20 years later. And yet the U.S. government has embarked on this path trying to convince the American people really through sort of psychological tricks more than anything that China is an enemy, China is an adversary, China must be hated and feared, and war or conflict of some type with China is now inevitable. Anyway, with that said, and giving you the final word here, uh, what's the U.S. calculation, say, in the next five to 10 years? Well, one can only hope that things go forward on a basis of some kind of rational calculation. You know, there's been a lot of information circulating in the military newspapers, in the defense industry journals and things like that, discussions of some of these war game scenarios that have been envisioned. And it's increasingly clear that an actual military engagement between the United States and China over Taiwan would not be something that would result in a favorable outcome for the United States. It would be economically disastrous. It would be militarily a defeat. It would be diplomatically humiliating. And I don't really think that American politicians actually want that to happen. But the rhetoric, the behavior, the provocative acts, whether it's sailing warships through the Taiwan Straits or putting these military trainers on the island of Taiwan, or even down in the South China Sea, some of the confrontational things going on down there. These are all steps that are being taken by the United States. It's the United States that's ramping up this confrontational atmosphere. And the danger is, exactly as you say, that maybe they think, oh, well, we can push China around. We can maybe force some concessions about trade. Who knows what they think they're going to gain from this? But, you know... <laughs> 
it's not the century of humiliation anymore. They're not dealing with a China that has to defer to the United States in terms of such a core issue of national sovereignty. They're just not going to do that. And, you know, on the one hand, I hope that the rational planners, I mean, I think that the general who, you know, called his counterpart in Beijing, you know, to say that we're not going to let Trump take us into war with China. And I just want to reassure you of that. I think that's a very rational voice. That was a gesture that, you know, was a wise thing to have done at that time. And hopefully calmer heads, cooler heads, more rational calculations like that will prevail in the Pentagon and even, you know, within the State Department and at the White House and in Congress. The public indications are not good. The public indications, the, the, the rhetoric, the political posturing, the I'm such a tough guy attitude that seems to be characteristic of American politicians, regardless of their actual gender, you know, this is not helpful. This is not constructive, and it's not something that's likely to advance the cause of a more constructive approach to the United States relationship with China. China is a developing country. It's an increasingly prosperous country, and it's going to play a growing role in global affairs. And the United States should be seeking a path of cooperation, collaboration, building some kind of shared you know, future rather than stirring up remnant issues from 60, 70 years ago and lurching dangerously close to actual military confrontation. So I think the next few years are fraught. I think that we are in a dangerous moment. I think that's why I work with an organization like Pivot to Peace, because voices need to be raised to say we have to stop this madness. We have to stop this posturing and this rhetoric and knock off these kinds of provocative activities. We need to find a way to get along and not to risk a hot war that would be devastating for the American people. I couldn't agree with you more, Ken. I think that one of the real problems is that this consensus position that China must be stopped, China must be defeated, China must be feared, that it's an adversary that only deserves conflict rather than cooperation in the main this consensus happened almost overnight when you look at the historical process. I mean, it was really in the last decade after President Obama declared the pivot to Asia in 2011. And then you have this consensus position whereby anybody who says the things that you are saying in the mainstream media would be like, you know, basically condemned as being an apologist for China or weak on China. In other words, the characteristic features of the witch hunt, the same that happened with the witch hunt in the Cold War in the late 1940s and 1950s in the United States against the Soviet Union. And then you have the politicians who make the votes about war appropriations, so-called defense appropriations. All they really care about is getting elected. Then you have the military industrial complex that only cares about selling more and more weapons and they need you know, a first class enemy to justify it. You have the Pentagon, which it's incentivized to have in order to get budget appropriations nearing a trillion dollars every year. You need a global enemy too. That's the situation. And even, even among sectors of the left who would presumably not be for war with China, 
the demonization of China is so great that they can't help themselves and they join the chorus and say, well, we may not be for war with China, but China really is evil. Rather than exposing the demonization campaign against China for what it is, which is to prepare the American population for something that would have been unacceptable 15 or 20 years ago, which is major power conflict with China, but to get people ready to accept, if not conflict itself, the risk of conflict. So I want to thank you, Ken Hammond. I want to applaud your efforts and the efforts of others, including Pivot to Peace, an organization you work with. For our audience, go to peacepivot.org and you can join that new peace movement demanding no cold war or hot war with China. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. If you enjoy this show, become a subscriber by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and show your support for this kind of independent programming. We'll be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.